I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. have done it we have come to the last episode of series two god and war and uh it's been quite a reformation hasn't it i'm sad this one's over though i I liked doing this series it's been it's been heavy there's been a lot of information uh there's been a lot of talking about god but we were almost to the end usually do (laughs) a lot more than we usually do (laughs) But we figured that a really nice way to tie it all together would be to look at specifically our queens in terms of their religious popular afterlife, I guess you can call it, um, their legacies as martyrs and as religious figureheads. So specifically, we're going to be focusing on Catherine of Aragon, Catherine Parr, and Anne Boleyn. It really has to do with just how their stories and how their respective fates have sort of transcended their lives. Um, Because these three in particular are so associated with their faith that it's something that we have to talk about when sort of defining their, their stories and their characters. But nowadays, I think we don't necessarily do that as often in the aftermath of the Reformation. So talking uh, during Edward and Mary and Elizabeth's reigns, the drama of the Reformation was starting to be analyzed and unpacked, and these queens emerged as figureheads of their respective causes. I, I'm going to go out on a ledge here and say none more than Catherine of Aragon under Mary, just because of the hectic attempt to reverse the Reformation. So in that case, do you want to just go ahead and start with Catherine of Aragon and talk about what she means to English Catholics? I can think of no better place to start. I think what's interesting, though, about Catherine is that her influence and her kind of longevity and with her association to Catholicism is really international, I'd say, or especially European, in a way that potentially Anne and Catherine don't have, which I think is quite, you know, it, it's not lost its ferocity over time. Yeah, right away we see, um, and we we talked about this before throughout this this series, so this should all be familiar to you, but we talked about (laughs) the idea that the court very quickly sort of split into these factions. There's the conservative slash Catholic side, there's the liberal slash Protestant side, and then of course there's sort of the gray area of people who just bend to Henry's will in the middle. But because all of this is sort of happening to Catherine directly, I think she becomes the main cause, the the face of the movement for the conservative Catholic faction. And as you say, it's not just in England, because you know you have Eustace Chapuis reporting on all of this to the emperor, and he is de facto in support of her. And yeah, you, you see Catherine and her cause becoming representative of the wider conservative cause for everybody in the country. And again, I we I think we discussed this before, but with the Reformation, there is a, a especially the early Reformation, there's a certain romanticization that happens and goes along with it. And I think usually you, we can kind of talk about that in terms of Anne and Henry, and you know Henry turning the world upside down for Anne. But what tends to get left out, you know, is a romanticization of Catherine's love of Henry. That's powerful in and of its own right, and you know is 
I think it's sadder and I think it's when you look at it in terms of like a movie narrative that's the one that endures it's much easier in these dramatic portrayals to talk about Catherine in terms of her personal turmoil and as you say the the slighted wife who's going through all of these um sort of love story-esque tropes than it is to actually sit down and examine her as a catholic martyr figurehead her devotion to her faith isn't necessarily hidden but it's definitely underscored in favor of the more sexy version of the love triangle if nothing else it's a bloody good bit of pr you know (laughs) but it's just interesting because that's not how they saw that at the time I mean, there were people um, who did support Catherine because they saw the point of view of the wife who's being thrown off for the younger woman. That's been a trope for a very long time. People did recognize that and they felt sorry for her because of that. But because this was a reformation, because this is inherently tied to religious politics, Catherine's faith is the thing. And that's why her legacy in the immediate aftermath within the 16th century is less of a slighted wife and more as a Catholic martyr, or at least somebody who stuck to her convictions. And she definitely didn't go quietly into the good night either, did she? So this is why during Mary's reign, it becomes very easy for her to sort of take up the mantle, further her mother's cause, because all of the people who once supported Catherine support the reign of Catherine's daughter. And as Mary is trying to rehabilitate her mother's image and move the country back towards uh, Catholicism, she's relying heavily on Catherine as a figurehead of it. She, you know, makes Catherine Henry's only legal wife again. Um, She really nails down this idea of Catherine was slighted. Catherine was this person to be admired and respected. And if Mary had lived longer, it wouldn't surprise me if she went down the Thomas More route of attributing miracles, or at least martyrizing her mother. Interesting. Just because you see it already starting. um, The accounts of Catherine's tomb, which we we talked about in our Halloween episode, um, Here of Phoenix Lieth. So if you want more information about Catherine's tomb, go check that episode out. But just very briefly, want to mention that Catherine's tomb modest as it was had an altar nearby and people were actively using that altar in prayer so Catherine was sort of this quasi saintly figure to these people who are praying at Peterborough Cathedral where she's buried so it wouldn't have been a huge leap for Mary to then say you know let's beatify her I I think you could be right there and I think it's quite an interesting way of thinking about it Again, I suppose for Mary, we have a very set image of her in our in our head, you know, traditionally, you know, being bloody Mary and just being quite aggressive in her reassertion of Catholicism. But I so I think it's interesting again that there's almost an element of like romanticization of her her mother's legacy and elevating her her status, you know, further. But we all know it didn't work out for Mary in the end. Um, none of her policies really really stuck her religious policies anyway. So then this during the reign of Elizabeth, it kind of kicks off a, a long period throughout both the 16th and 17th centuries, and even today to some extent, where Catholics are being 
persecuted. They're viewed with a lot of suspicion. They're viewed as not being loyal to the crown, the government. So I think Catherine still endures as a symbol of strength for them to the point where um, I was reading an account of Catherine's tomb researching for our previous Halloween episode. And there was a lot of vandalism associated with Catherine's tomb just because it did seem to be some kind of sanctuary for Catholics. It wasn't huge. Like people weren't making pilgrimages there or anything, but there was an altar there. People could pray there. They might've seen it as a safe space with somebody like Catherine, who was so well known for encouraging the faith that it was already, even during Elizabeth's reign, being vandalized and viewed with a lot of suspicion. But I think also what's quite interesting then as well is when you go into the English Civil War that was happening in the 1600s then as well, but people still going there and reporting miracles, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that as a result of the Reformation, there's a complicated history with a relationship with Catholicism post Catherine, really, you know, and it never their their reputation never really recovers. You know, even now, if you're watching something like horrible histories and you're looking at things like the Spanish Armada, it's always viewed as the Catholic kind of side of the Catholic plots and stuff like that. It's very sneaky and very kind of underhanded and things like that. So it makes sense that during the English Civil War, when the Protestant factions are going around destroying all of these traditionally Catholic or just conservative monuments in churches they go after Catherine's uh they destroy the altar near her tomb they completely get rid of terrorize her her tomb because they see her as a symbol of catholicism it's it's very much an enduring image of her much more so than it is today but i think this is is sort of when it ends because when you look at all of the victorian histories Again, it's not that it's not mentioned, like Catherine's faith is very important in her narrative, but it is secondary to all of her personal woes. The Victorians love them a good love story, so they're they're less focused on the endurance of her faith and they're much more interested in the love triangle. Yeah, again, I I find Catherine fascinating, but I think she... You know, her afterlife is very complicated because even now, if you go to Peterborough, there's a tomb there and it's very much a site where people will go and put like pomegranates and things like that. And which was her badge that she used while she was queen. So it's lost its kind of religious significance. And now it's a site for kind of historians and kind of historical people, lovers of history rather than anything else. Yeah, she's a historic figurehead. She's in some respects a feminist figurehead um you know people identify with her story for whatever reason or just are very endeared to her story you see less and less of the catholic association that being said though when preparing for this episode just out of curiosity i googled catherine of aragon martyr because i was just curious like are there these conversations around her anymore and i found a lot of forum discussions like there was a quite lengthy reddit thread about whether or not catherine of aragon should be declared a saint and it was from relatively recently it was from the 2010s so people are still having this discussion it's not as prominent maybe as it was in say the 1540s but it's it's there. People are still discussing it, which I found fascinating. It is an odd one, I think, because when you look at Thomas More, you know, he was made, he's 
bit has he is a saint for his religious convictions so i think to some people's mind it's odd therefore that catherine hasn't because you know if anybody deserved to be one by some standards it is her but i don't think her her story fits in the same way because it's not as neat and tidy as thomas as thomas moore's and she didn't necessarily die for the faith so she i don't think she can be considered an official martyr but it it just it caused me to sort of consider the qualifications for sainthood now and why she wouldn't have been considered for this. You know, she didn't even make any, you know, long lists of nominees for sainthood. Her mother did. Her mother did, actually. Uh, Isabel of Castile was was on a list in the 70s to to be sainted, but um, it didn't it didn't work out. But a lot of people in the Reddit thread were pointing out that Catherine was married and you know very famously the mother of of several children and very few saints uh, uh, female saints are married the majority of them are virgins because it's seen as like the purest form for a woman so right away i think that kind of get knocks Catherine back a few but then people were also saying that there aren't any miracles associated with her and that's definitely a prerequisite for sainthood there are some accounts in the 17th century of people maybe um experiencing miracles at her tomb there's one story floating around the internet and through several popular history books where a man had some kind of growth maybe a tumor on his head and he had a dream about touching Catherine's tomb and then when he woke up it was suddenly healed but I have never seen the actual source for that I've seen it floating around so maybe it's it's a thing but I have never actually seen the source for it so I don't know we can't say for sure that she has caused any miracles I love those stories though it's almost as though history and everybody wants it to be real so we're just just gonna accept that it was or that this it happened for this poor man even if we can't find evidence for it yeah, I, th- I think the funniest thing about um, kind of sainthood and stuff like that is, for me, is just, you know, even for as a woman, even to become a saint, there's plenty more hoops for you to jump through. <laughs> right. Thomas More had how many kids? And that was no question. That was with, within, what, years of, of his execution? But no, no, no such for Catherine. So I doubt that she'll be sainted. But there, I think there is a chance if people are interested in, you know, kind of forming a popular movement to maybe getting recognition as a martyr, because the other sort of ref- English Reformation martyr is um, Margaret Pole, ob- yes. oddly enough, was uh, beatified in the 1880s because technically she was executed for not, um, you know, not adhering to the oath of supremacy. So there is a there is a chance, you know, Catherine could join the ranks. People could make a case for her. But I think just as a religious figure, maybe in a more more secular society, she's losing her prominence that way. It's an important part of her story, but it's not necessarily the most important part of her story to us in the 21st century. This is very true. Mind you, though, saying that I'd happily sign that petition. <laughs> I think it'd be cool. Yeah. Like she would get a, uh, you know, a cool painting or statue or something of the beatified Catherine. 
be okay with that. It'd be cool. That's our mission for 2022 into 2023. Yeah, the Six Queens podcast fandom. We're going to start a GoFundMe. We're going to have a petition. It's going to be great. (laughs) We're going to send it to Pope Francis. He He can't refuse us. So on the Protestant side, I think the best way to gauge the religious legacy of our queens is by looking through John Fox. John Fox is the author of an enormous book. I mean, both in, you know, physically and in in scope. It's a book that covers hundreds of years. It's thousands of pages long and it's freaking huge. It would knock you out if someone hit you with it. Phil. Yeah, it's dangerous. John Fox is a Protestant scholar and historian whose great work is, I'm going to go with the full title here, so get ready, The Acts and Monuments of These Latter and Perilous Days Touching Matters of the Church. It was published during Elizabeth's reign in 1563, and it became instantly one of the most popular books of the century. It was published four times in Fox's lifetime. And because it was so big, they actually um, they made a smaller version of it, like an abridged version of it that became known as the Book of Martyrs, which is the popular name for the entire text today. A lot of you might hear a lot of people call it Fox's Book of Martyrs. Really, what it is, is a history of important things and people in the English Reformation So very handy for outlining the early days of the Reformation. But because Fox is writing from a lot of secondhand sources, like he wasn't actually there for the majority of the things he writes about, you do have to take it with a grain of salt. Um, And, you know, it's it's specifically being written as Protestant propaganda. So he's he might be stretching things. He might be making people look better than they really were. We can't be really sure. But what we can be sure about is that, as I said, it's a really good way to gauge who the influential people are, what are the influential events to Protestants as the Church of England is really taking shape. Again, with with Fox, there's some enduring imagery that goes along with with what he's saying and things like that. There's one particular example that um, for me always really sticks out with Fox and it's a story of the four Lewis Martyrs which is a really small town in Sussex. The four martyrs that Fox talks about that are from Lewis are still celebrated and still kind of heralded as martyrs now and their names appear on like big posters and things like that and people will carry um, kind of torches for them. But again this has come from his book he was trying to establish the Protestant mythology, if you like, you know, these That's foundational, yeah, these foundational stories that you grow up learning and it's part of your national identity that this happened and you can really rally behind these people. I think a lot of the these people who grew up Catholic found a lot of comfort in the stories of saints. So what Fox was trying to do was give the English church their own martyrs, their own people to look up to and follow the example of. And to the point where, as you say, you're you're all still celebrating them 
Um, and I just really like that idea of having like a pocket, a hand like a pocket guide to um, prominent Protestants that one needs to remember and yeah, celebrate. Your, your field guide to Protestant martyrs in England. <laughs> you got your bird book, you got your martyr book, you're, you're all set for an English vacation. <laughs> So why are we talking about John Fox? Well, it's because that two of our queens were included fairly heavily in the Acts and Monuments. They didn't make it into the Field Guide of Martyrs, unfortunately, but they did make it into the wider history of the foundation of the church. So the two queens that were included, if you've been listening to the series, I'm sure you can probably guess who they are, are Catherine Parr and Anne Boleyn. Catherine Parr doesn't play a huge role which is weird considering that she was such a prolific author in her time and she thought that her great cause was to write about reformed faith. She does have a long section, it's chapter 212 in Acts and Monuments, where uh, Fox outlines the story that we told you in the last episode with Catherine and Bishop Stephen Gardner and how she was almost you know, caught for, for her faith, but she got through it and how evil Gardner was, etc. That's really the enduring legacy of Catherine, unfortunately, is that she had these beliefs, but didn't necessarily act on them, which is sad, because as we said, too, in, in the last episode, a lot of the things that she either translated or wrote herself were set to music and put in the Book of Common Prayer or even included in Church of England services today. It's just that we forget that she's associated with them. And Fox did too. I suppose it almost makes sense that history's forgotten, for the lack of a better word. Not that it's, you know, it's part of her story and a very big part of her story, but what it, it's inconvenient because it doesn't fit that conventional image that we have of her um, and that history has created for her. Because, you know, I think with Catherine, there's very much that image, and, you know, we've discussed this a, a few times now, I think, you know, that she was the nursemaid of, of Henry and that doting wife at the end of his years. Very rarely does the story continue beyond that. The queen who features much more prominently in, in the John Fox accounts is Anne Boleyn. I don't want to be rude to Anne when I say that this is probably because her daughter was queen at this time, but that's probably a bit of why she has such a prominent role in the text. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's seen as one of her greatest legacies, right? That her her daughter ended up being queen. So we'll give that to her. <laughs> but that's not to say that, you know, as we know today, she didn't play a huge role in it. I mean, the Church of England was created on her behalf so fox really recognizes her and her role in that he does tend to not give her as much credit as we would today like she's definitely not the strong political player that we know she was within his narrative but it is her piety and her devotion to the cause that really comes out in this account and as i say it's not to say that this wasn't true of Anne. We know it was, but because her daughter is queen, he's probably really trying to establish Elizabeth as sort the sort of successor to her mother's ambition. As you say, Anne is literally written into the four walls of the Church of England, even by 16th century standards. You you, you can't ignore that. Fox, because he's writing what he considers to be a history, doesn't tend to get into the personal details. He he writes everybody as almost characters 
um, yeah. in, in this wider narrative. But if we look at some of the other Protestant accounts of the Reformation that were written in Elizabeth's reign, we get much more dramatic portrayals of Anne, which I think are really fascinating. So one of the weirdest ones, but one of the best ones, comes from a reformer named Alexander Ailes. He fled England during Mary's reign uh, in this sort of self-imposed exile. But before that, he was around during Anne's tenure as queen. He was in her circle. I can't remember quite exactly what his role was, but I think he was sort of an assistant to one of her chaplains. He was around, though, and he knew her to some extent. So he was very much associated with her little Protestant faction at court. When Elizabeth becomes queen and she's trying to settle the religious question, Ailes writes to her to try to convince her to make the Church of England as Protestant as possible. And he uses Anne as his device to get in with Elizabeth. He establishes their connection. You know, I knew your mom. She was great. But he really butters up Elizabeth by telling her that Anne is essentially a Protestant martyr that she died for the cause and not necessarily for the, you know, personal politics of Henry and, and his wives. Well, he does it in quite a graphic way, though, doesn't he? And he just, it, it's not pretty. Yeah, as a lot of Protestants, he puts a lot of weight on dreams and visions. So he says that before Anne's execution, he had a vision of her and he could see a, a version of her severed head and all of the, quote, nerves, veins, and arteries in the head. So it was this very graphic vision that he had. And he thinks it's because, like so many, so much Catholic imagery, you know, we see the violent deaths of saints in so much Catholic imagery. I think it's his version of setting her up as a martyr that way. I mean, I get it, but it's gross. <laughs> it's a really bizarre letter. I encourage it. I think there are transcripts of it going around online. I encourage people to look it up because it's it's a fun read. But yeah, he, he isn't shy about declaring Anne as pious, holy. He calls her the most holy queen. He tells Elizabeth that true religion in England had its commencement and its end with your mother. So he is very clear about the fact, as we are, that the Church of England would not exist without her. I don't know, it, it may have been accidental, actually, where he calls her the most holy. I feel like that's a fun play on words of her her motif of the most happy. Oh, I didn't think of that. That is fun. <laughs> Whether intentional or otherwise, I appreciate it. <laughs> not only, as you said, is he putting himself squarely in Elizabeth's favour and doing a lovely amount of um, ass-kissing, it's quite a different way of approaching Elizabeth rather than trying to appease her, you know, through her, her father or something like that. It is through Anne, which we don't see all too often. Well, when your mother is, you know, the first Queen of England to be executed for high treason, I can't imagine a lot of courtiers use her as an example of what you should be living up to in your own reign. <laughs> so it is interesting to see this complete 180 of oh no, the queen was so pious, she died for her faith, now it's your turn to finish what she started. But as we saw with Catherine of Aragon, Anne's reputation as this Protestant martyr doesn't stick. It is very much around during Elizabeth's reign, and then it 
falls off spectacularly. So Anne, even still today, her religious convictions are very much sidelined in favor of, again, the love triangle and her political savviness rather than her, her faith. No, it's convenient, isn't it? it? It doesn't fit the story that we want it to. That's the that's the thing that sticks with people. That's the thing that they find most interesting. And again, you know, even when you're talking about her execution and things like that, you know, her religious convictions and things like that, people don't talk about them. You know, it was very much, you know, Anne was an adulterer, you know, later down the line, you know, she became a witch you know, with six fingers and things like that. So anything to separate her for as far as you can from the creation of this this new church is and the length some people go to is really interesting. It is nice to see more recent scholarship that brings that to the forefront. There was a controversial okay series um, that aired last year on the BBC. And while I had a lot of issues with it that we won't get into maybe at a later time, <laughs> one of the things I did really appreciate was that they had a really large showcase of Anne's Bible and Anne's involvement in the creation of the Bible in English. I thought that was really spectacular because that's a side of her that you never see in the dramatic portrayals. It's either the Wolf Hall version of Anne as a politician, or it's like the Tudor's version of Anne as this very romantic, seductive person. It's never both, and it never brings in God. So I really liked that. I, I like this idea of seeing Anne's legacy more akin to what was seen of her in Elizabeth's reign in the later 16th century. There's been a lot of work recently that's and it's been quite subtle I think about reintroducing especially Catherine and to Anne back into their own religious narrative and I'm quite excited to kind of see how that develops and, and where it goes. I'm going to admit to a big no-no for historians this morning, getting ready for our recording, I did look at the Wikipedias for Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, and Catherine you Parr. Didn't. I did. But the reason I did it was because I was curious what, in this most public, popular of, you know, sort of historic narratives, Wikipedia, I was curious what people were saying about the legacies of these three women and if there would be any mention of the things that we've come to know, like will Catherine Parr's article go into a lot of detail about her writing and what has happened with her writing? Will Anne Boleyn's article talk about all of this Protestant narrative from the reign of Elizabeth? No. Their legacies are basically that they were wives of Henry and that they've undergone a lot of almost feminist retouching but not anything to do with their faiths. And I just find that so fascinating because the whole reason for doing this series was because we identified this period, this cause, as the main political turmoil of their time. This is the thing that they kind of all had in common when it comes down to the politics of their reign. And yet it's barely mentioned in their legacies. Anne Boleyn is not recognized as this big Protestant figure as she was in the first histories that were written about her. Catherine of Aragon is not regarded as somebody who qualifies for sainthood. Catherine Parr's books are barely mentioned at all on her page. So people 
who are reading this who, you know, might see one of these women in a historical drama and just do a quick Google search are reading all of this and really not getting this angle of their stories, which yeah. fascinating, A, and infuriating, B. it for the reformation right i'm sure we'll come back to it at some point don't you worry? oh no doubt we will it's just i think as i said important for us to establish this timeline establish these events because we're going to be coming back to it so often this is really one of the cornerstones of the tudor period we all need to know this if we're going to go ahead so oh, now we know sure, sure we'll revisit transubstantiation and consubstantiation many times i like, sure hope not but it is very important for us to know what sides of the fight these women were on what their personal convictions were how involved in these politics like even the people who we don't know a lot about their personal beliefs like jane seymour clearly had some investment in all of this drama so yeah we just we need to have established that before we go forward so thank you so much for coming on this journey with us through the English Reformation. We had a lot of fun doing it. Clearly, we learned a lot, but I think it was kind of exhausting as well. It's tense. It's intense. It, it, there's a lot of theory or kind of historiography that goes along with it that sometimes still boggles the mind. And as to, you know, sort of lapsed Christians, there was a lot of <laughs> explaining <laughs> of terms that we had to do to each other, which got a little intense and exhausting at times. <laughs> Many debates about whether or not to include the Anabaptists or exclude the Anabaptists. Are they important? Nah, nah. Sorry if you are one, I guess. <laughs> That's a debate for a different day. So we're going to go ahead and take the summer off. We might be back for a couple of specials over the summer. Uh, like there's a really juicy new Elizabeth drama coming to our favorite Tudor History Network stars that we, we might feel the need to review. So we, we might do that over the summer, but otherwise we will be coming back with another season of episodes this fall to celebrate our one year anniversary. So please look out for that. Yes, I, I have been a year already. That's mad. I know. So because it's our anniversary and because this season was so heavy with politics and theory and theology i think we're going to do something a little lighter and something much more fun for the next series for sure i'm excited to find out what it is because um not gonna lie, we still we don't, don't know yet, yet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be just as surprised as you are so thank you once again to everybody who stuck with us through this series. Uh, we really appreciate all of the comments and the feedback we've been getting, all of the streams, all of the views. Thank you. Thank you. So again, if you would like to tell us what you thought of this series, we welcome any and all feedback. You can leave us a review on Apple. You can uh, tweet some questions or comments at us. You can comment on our Instagram profile. We are also on the Good Pods app, so you can rate and share with your friends. Please consider doing that. It really helps the indie podcast to get the word out. With that, I guess we'll see you in the autumn. Have a lovely summer. Bye, guys. <laughs>